Hello again, it's me, Gore Blimey, bringing you the second half of my discussion with the lovely Amanda Reyes. We've been looking at the BBC's A Ghost Story for Christmas TV films from the 70s, once as big a part of the annual UK festivities as having a perfectly decorated tree. Ideally, one with dangling baubles, a fairy on top, and a big package down below. Or maybe that's just me. Anyway, let's return to the second half of our conversation and three more films from the series, starting with The Treasure of Abbott Thomas from Christmas 1974. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Verimus quem presentem diem multa gariunt inter se canonici de absconditur quod amistius abatis Tomae Thesaro. Up to the present day, there is much gossip among the canons concerning a certain hidden treasure of this Abbot Thomas. What Abbot Thomas? Of this foundation. He died rather suddenly in 1429. It's said that he escaped burning by being carried off by the devil. Why burning? Oh, he was an alchemist. One might almost say a magician. Not at all a suitable occupation for a 15th century churchman. The charlatan, anyway. The treasure of Abbot Thomas begins with a seance. The woman holding the seance is Peter's mother. Her name is Lady Dowderling. Um, she feels her son, Peter, is not living up to her husband's memory. And so Peter enlists the aid of Reverend Justin Somerton. Justin comes to, to a seance and meets a couple who claim to be mediums, but who are obviously nervous about having a man of God at their gathering. Did you did you think, was it just me, did you think that the woman that was doing the seance, the actual, the the one of the mediums, when it, when it first opened, I wasn't sure what she was doing. She seemed to be enjoying herself a bit too much. Oh, well, I don't remember thinking that, but I thought it was interesting. Um, the seance itself was really creepy because the voices seemed to be off camera. Mm. And and when you watch seances, it's usually like you see the mouth moving of the medium. Yes, but it was coming from the other one, yes. Yeah, I, I'll have to go back and watch the enjoying yourself thing because maybe there's some sort of... <laughs> I think it's because I wasn't sure what, you know, it just opened. And one of the first things you see is a woman sitting there kind of uh, sort of moaning and, and gasping and I was thinking what what am I watching <laughs> uh, I'm thinking that my completely innocent mind wouldn't pick up on something like that no. GB That's all no I'm say. <laughs> no I never would go there <laughs> so this is going to skip around a little because I tried to do it in sequential order and so there might be scenes that I mentioned after yeah yeah that actually came before but I'll, I'll try to note that so um so the mediums are obviously very nervous about having a man of God at their gathering, and uh, they still attempt to conjure up Father Dominic, who will then talk to Lady Datterling's husband. Um, but in this eerie scene, Justin debunks a disembodied voice by asking the father to translate Latin and French. So one of the mediums has like this piece in his mouth, which helps him sort of throw the voice, mm. and Justin basically makes him cough it up. And he he disgraces the two mediums, um, who are a couple that they claim to share a gift, but were obviously charlatans. Um, but before that visit to Lady Dowderling, Justin tells the tale of a disgraced abbot named Thomas, who was considered a fraud and who was supposedly, quote unquote, carried off by the devil, but had left gold in a centuries old monastery. 
So it is here at the seance that Justin had come to debunk that both Justin and Peter discover references to a poem that I guess came from Father Thomas refer to a window in a monastery, which features the images of Bartholomew, Jude, Simon, and Matthew. And I put a question mark there because I don't know religious references that well. No, I don't either. No. Yeah, I think that's who they're referring to. So can I just say with this one is that, yeah, so, uh, just thinking about Pete, he, he shows Peter his Latin passage is what I've got on my note. Um, I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if it's just me, but did you get like a really strong gay vibe from these two characters? You know, I didn't. You know what's so interesting about these episodes is I got no sexual vibe from anybody. Mm. They feel so they so they feel so bereft. Well, these two were the only ones I felt like this. It was a little bit a bit odd to me. Um, that I mean, they both got slightly theatrical sort of mannerisms anyway. But there's yeah. lots of long looks at each other, which seem to be just a little bit longer than you would normally have between a tutor and a uh, you know and a pupil. Um, they call each other by their first names, which seemed yes. odd as well. I know. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, they just seem a little bit too chummy for that kind of relationship and they're sort of always together and there's even a scene where the the younger guy uh has got his hand on his chin and he's kind of gazing at the other one it just all seemed a little bit it was it did, i must admit it did distract me a bit from the story for a while because i kept puzzling over that so you know and that's not even mentioned probing around in a dark tunnel later on uh -huh. to find treasure but uh oh, anyway we'll, <laughs> we'll wait for that <laughs> <laughs> but i do i want to take back what i said because i actually thought in the first story the stalls of barchester that the archdeacon and um his sister I thought they were husband and wife for a while. I did at the beginning, yes, yes. Yeah, there, there was something there that didn't feel brother and sister to me. Um, and so when they noted it, I was actually taken aback. So yeah, there is a little hint of weirdness in some of these, but, um, but yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. And I'm sorry I didn't because it sounds like a, <laughs> a really good time, to be honest with you. I think it says more about me, I think, that I was reading this into it. <laughs> well, I don't know. You never know, right? So maybe some of your listeners will write in and let you know what they thought. Um, I also, the other thing I thought was, I don't know why it amused me, but in the, the seance dinner scenes and stuff, they kept going on and on about slab cake, which sounds the most it's not the nicest description of a cake it just sounds horrible it's like my wife will have the slab cake surely there's a prettier name for that sort of cake <laughs> no offense but a lot of your words for food like spotted dick and um isn't there like curdled cream or something and then there's something else that's um you're telling me about it like isn't black pudding like it's not pudding no 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 definitely not <laughs> i almost ordered it because i thought it was just like oh. a pudding you you would be very surprised if you got that. It's a blood sausage. <laughs> oh, so gross. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. So I think that there's something I don't I don't I'm not taking it back. No, I was gonna say there's nothing wrong with um spotted dick. You can't beat a bit of spotted dick, I can tell you that. Especially uh, with custard. Very good. Or a bit of roly poly. I believe you. I believe <laughs> especially with the custard. It has to have custard, oh, right? God, or yeah, what's the definitely. point? That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> uh, so I will say they go to the monastery, which I believe was um, Wells Cathedral. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with that. I've never been, but yes, yes, it was a great cathedral. They they picked some really good places, like Norwich was really good, and Wells in this yeah. case was perfect. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Um, so they go to the monastery, and Peter photographs this the window with the four figures we just referenced, and um, pragmatic Justin draws it. There's this whole this is the whole thing about. Uh, 
the industrial revolution as well because they have a conversation about taking photographs and drawing and you know what works yes. and yes. and so there's this there's this logic that kind of uh, underlines the scene and so um, while taking the photos both men notice an unfamiliar Latin text which they interpret but cannot seem to place. So as Justin develops the film, he notices a blemish that looks eerily like a face and which uh, decodes the first message on the window regarding a figure that, quote, looks down upon high, which leads the men to the top of the monastery. Justin is afraid of heights, but scales partway towards the top where he's briefly attacked by a dark figure, which to me, I thought would large bird wings and uh which were really freaky and i thought he wasn't going to make it past that point so i was really surprised it was sort of a warning i think is what it was well that was an odd scene anyway because when they got to the tower he was they were acting a bit strange and i did think he was going to toss him off the roof i mean (laughs) oh my gosh we're getting there gb we're getting there the flow is kicking in (laughs) i told you it was something about them too (laughs) yeah i didn't really know what was going to happen either one of them um at this point, but I really thought Justin was done. I thought, okay, that's the end of his story, but, um, but he makes it. And, um, afterwards they return to the text, but Justin spills ink on the drawing which foreshadows a slimy substance that will haunt him towards the end of the story. Um, Oh, nice one. I hadn't spotted that. Oh, Oh, I'm impressed with that one. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of foreshadowing in this, um, for what's to come. Um, the decoding leads the men to believe that there's text underneath a thick black coat of paint on the window, which I think was part of, uh, image, uh, figures robe. And they end up scratching off the, uh, ink or whatever it is. And I was like, can you do that? Because isn't this like an ancient artifact? <laughs> I, I've got the same thing written down in my notes. It's like I got, I've got. i said they start scratching the paint off one of the windows and an exclamation mark next to it. Because I thought, really? Really? I mean, I don't know if you can do that. But the other thing is, wouldn't that just scratch off the stuff underneath it? Well, yeah, I was more like you're defacing art. You know yeah, what I mean? It, yeah. It's like that really as an art history minor, you know, that really mm. bothered me. We have not yet considered the second scroll. Um, they have on their vestments a writing which no man knoweth. They have no writing on their vestments at all. No. Has it occurred to you, however, that there is a curiously broad black band on the edge of the cope? But they end up finding another code, so it all worked out, and it takes them all night to decipher. Um, and Justin can only decipher it when he sees these numbers uh, next to the window that just say one, two, three on the wall. Now, my understanding is that they had to count so many letters. Yes. Miss, and then it was break something like miss the first. It was one, two, three. It was like skip a letter. And then the next time skip two and the next time skip three. It was, it was something like that. Anyway, they, they took an, a very long time to, to work out these kids. I like that they tried all sorts of things, including a, a folded paper thing, which reminded me of those things. I don't know if you used to have them in the playground where you sort we of. We did. Yes. And it sort of tells you secrets and things that one of those. I thought that was interesting too. And actually this was kind of a fun part of the episode because I really like, um, research obviously i mentioned that and so they're trying all these different methods i thought it was a bit like it reminded me of the a team where it gets to that point and they start finding all these different things and putting together something wow a team so (laughs) so hannibal was justin and face was peter is what you're saying (laughs) oh i don't know about that (laughs) which one was mr t i don't know So, so this leads to uh, more text, and it sort of—I think it describes the gold as, as 
having there's 2000 pieces of gold and um, they can assume that the treasure is quite valuable. Um, I think we start to see Justin's greedy nature coming through here more so than in um, a warning to the curious, because I kind of feel like Paxton at least gives an excuse for why he's doing what he's doing. It's not pure greed. It's sort of desperation here. I think Justin's just kind of really greedy and wants it, wants, wants like he gets this look in his eye and I think it starts to reveal more about his nature. Um, So he takes off into a dark place within the monastery, passing a slug on a statue, which actually telegraphs the slime to come once more. That was a lovely touch with a big slug crawling across the, the face of the statue. Is that the one you mean? Yeah. That was great. Have you seen the innocence? No, no, I really should have, but no, not yet. Um, it's really good, but there's, and we actually, when I referenced the innocence earlier, I meant turn of the screw. I meant, yeah, it became the innocence later, so I'm sorry. But um, the, in the innocence, there's a really amazing camera shot of like a slug going across a statue. And before I realized where this episode was going, the, the innocence for me, what that means is that you're sort of in the wake of beauty, but there's this sense of menace or ugliness there, yes. which is sort of to describe what's happening with one of the characters. But um, here, I didn't really understand what it was yet, but I made a note that it reminded me of the innocence. So um, there's some great night shots there as well, because you've got um, him walking through the cloisters towards the graveyard, and it's brilliant because there it's all it, this is proper night yeah. shooting and everything, and it's just so atmospheric with the the gothic stonework and everything. And this is, is again why it's such a a great location. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Justin discovers the final piece of the text in this tunnel, which states, upon one stone, seven eyes. Uh, he sees a brick that has this exact image. And so he ends up digging out the rock. I got in my notes. It says that he, he finds a stone with seven eyes, grabs his tool and starts pounding. Wow. This <laughs> This is an R-rated uh, episode. I didn't realize. Um, but he is attacked by monstrous hands. But the hands are above the sheets, we want to note here. Um, and he's covered in a black slime. Uh, this was a really creepy scene. This really because I feel like there's also an image in some water there. Am I right? Yeah. I think you see something in the water too. Um, yes, there's like a glimpse of like a face or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's really creepy. So um, Justin spends the next two days locked in his room, waiting for the slime to come at night and then dissipate as morning draws near, which I thought was really interesting and made me think of um, the stalls of Barchester because he felt safe in his room yes. when he was reading. And so when he went to go get his watch in the stalls of Barchester, it's like you could tell he knew he didn't want to leave the room, but he did it. And I was like, just oversleep. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Sleep in that day. Just don't leave the room. But here, too, there's like this sense of it comes to your door, but it doesn't come in. And which is almost creepier in a way. Um, So... He uh, he has the treasure, which he declares is worth nothing, and he demands that Peter return it to the place it was originally uncovered. Um, driven mad, Peter and his mother call upon a doctor to treat Justin. When they see a man dressed in black uh, with his face obscured coming up the path, they leave Justin with his final destiny. Um, and I wrote very much uh, like a warning to the curious uh, – treasure, greed, and something coming into the room. Oh, we were talking about this. And bleak yeah. ending. So the yeah. ending of this – really upset me it's so well done um so like 
what happens is is that uh, Peter and his mom are like, okay, we'll see you. The doctor's here, and they take off. And then there's sort of this above. I think it's above uh, Justin in his chair. Yes, camera, that's right. And Looking the down, yeah. Come, yeah, and the figure comes to him, and you can't see what the figure is, but we can assume it's death. And he reaches he reaches his arm out to touch Justin, and then the credits just pop up. Yes, and it's so jarring. It is. It just all of a sudden. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you get these goosebumps because you know what's going to happen, but you don't see it, which makes it almost worse, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And it really freaked me out. And this was my favorite episode oh, until cool. I rewatched Warning to the Curious because um, it, it, it's got a lot of really good imagery in here. The seance was really scary. Oh, I love um, the seance, yeah. <laughs> it's so good, so good. The slime and mm. the hand and the image and the water and just the, the black – cape that looks like wings um coming down upon justin and i really like um the two leads as well i didn't notice the stuff you did like i didn't see the subtext that you saw but <laughs> but i thought that they were interesting characters that were pretty dynamic there's a, at the very end when this final scene when they're outside talking and the mother's there i like that the mother's talking and she's saying one day peter will get married and i thought yeah right <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of funny i wonder if it was kind of meant to be like that it would be interesting to read the short story to see if it has that <laughs> same know. subject I, I anything that starts off with a seance is going to be good in my books but i really love the location again I, as i said before i mean the gargoyles looking down watching what's happening and and so on and i loved the um like the sort of secret tunnel thing and it, it looks like it's a real thing as part of the the graveyard this kind of triangular yes. hole with a with a gated entrance and it's the kind of thing if i lived near there i'd have to go and see that i'd have to go and to see what it is but it was it was a, a really good location yeah, it was. It's kind of maze-like in a way. Like, I don't know that I ever really knew where I was at any given moment in the monastery because there's so many nooks and crannies to it. And so that in and of itself is sort of jarring because you can't get a real sense of place as a viewer during mm. some of the scenes. And when they're mm. looking at the window, you know where you are. But he's going to all different places and all kinds of stuff. They're scaling walls and whatever. Yeah. And like, And so you're never quite sure where you are and and it really kind of helps keep you sort of on edge as the story progresses because there's a lot of like these are very heavily dialogue driven in a way yes, and yeah and there's a lot of clues given in this like they're decoding things and they're breaking apart the poem and it's sometimes hard to remember what part of the poem they're on you know what i mean and so so there's lots of different ways that they that they um i can't think of another word for jarring it's like um yes, yeah I can't think of it, but it keeps you on the edge of your seat, kind of keeps you on your toes. Um, and so it's a really interesting the way um, they they know that they have to have a lot of dialogue because it's a puzzle that they're solving. But then they use kind of the sense of place to keep it really scary mm. is what yeah. I think I'm saying. So, yeah, I quite liked it. It'd probably be my second favorite. Okay. E-D-M-O-O-M-S-V-I-V. Ed Moans Bib. Makes no sense at all. Well, it's a code. <sighs> Clearly, a cryptogram or code. Then we must work it out. And then we're down to the next one, which is the ash tree from 1975. Mistress Mother Sol. I cannot believe it. But what I saw ye do, that I saw, and that have I had to testify. 
I can scarce believe it. But what I have seen, I have seen. Right, next up is The Ash Tree from 1975, which is another big house story, another great location. And we've got Sir Richard, who's the new squire, arriving on horseback and meeting all his staff outside. And while he's being introduced to them, Mrs Chiddock, who's one of the members of staff, shows him portraits of ancestors of his, including Sir Matthew, who looks uncannily like him because yeah. they're played by the same actor. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, um, Mrs Chiddick, if I've got the right actress, uh, apart from appearing as an old hag in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which was an old Hammer film, she also had minor parts in seven of the Carry On films, oh. which I don't know if that means anything to you or not. Yes, it does. Okay. Right. And they also mention in this opening bit uh, Lady Augusta, who will be the new mistress who's coming. We also start to see the first of these strange kind of visions that Sir Richard has. This is somebody in very old-fashioned clothes, like sort of um, sort of Puritan-type clothes, silhouetted in a window, calling out Sir Matthew. Anyway, back to the, the main story. And while he's out riding, Sir Richard finds a dead deer... And they're a dead, pe uh, sorry, a dead peasant then, a dead pheasant. That's a very different story. <laughs> I was like, what? I don't remember that. <laughs> wow. And, and he finds that the sheep are being kept undercover because of the sickness. We then see him talking to Dr. Croom, saying that he's got plans for changes to be made. And those plans include having a new family pew on the north side of the nave of the church. In other words, it's the bit that's not hallowed ground. But apparently there is one grave there. A new family pew. An earnest of hope, Sir Richard, but I fear it cannot be altogether as you have it to the south of the nave without disturbing hallowed ground. To the north. If the graves to the north side be unhallowed, not that I remember observing any so close to the present wall as to... There is one. Would the church object to my disturbing it? The church would not object. Well, then. Of course. Why? Why bother? It's unhallowed. Why, why do we care? Exactly. So there's more silhouettes appear in these kind of visions standing in the window. And there's also a flashback to his ancestor, Sir Matthew. And he says something like, the lady in question has been found of which the law is the law. My sheriff's duty is my sheriff's duty. The lady has to die. Mm. And he speaks in this very odd way. He keeps saying these phrases where he repeats, like, the law is the law. My sheriff's duty is my sheriff's duty. He has this very odd way of, of saying things, but that comes up quite a lot in this. Mm. And all of a sudden, Dr. Crew, back in the uh, present time, is saying, die, Sir Richard. And so he's obviously having these sort of flashbacks or visions or something. And uh, he, he says, no, I didn't say anyone was going to die. I'm talking about the lady being removed. To which Dr. Croom says... I never said it was a lady in the grave. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We find out that the woman in question is called, uh, she's referred to as Mistress Mother Soul. Hmm. Lady Augusta arrives on horseback. She's very oh. sort of prim and very buttoned up. Yes, she yes. is. She's not a. I expected her to be kind of a nasty character, and she's not. But there's definitely like a quality to her that's like super aloof to me. Yeah, she and seems very cold. Very yeah, not horrible, just a bit cold. 
she's pretty, but there's something about her that makes me find her like an unattractive person. Do you know what I mean? The yeah. character, not the actress. But the no, character. no. The actress is quite well known over here because she oh. was, if, well, if, if anyone used to watch Doctor Who in the old series of Doctor Who that was on for years, she was one of the companions for quite a long oh. time. She was called Romana. And in, in fact, she was married for a while to Tom Baker, who was one of the doctors. Oh. She wow. also, actually, I don't know if she still is or not, but she was married to Richard Dawkins as well. The, the guy who wrote The Selfish Gene and The God Delusion, those books. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, um, so she comes across as all very prim and she rides side saddle as well. And, <laughs> Whatever. Um, I know. <laughs> um, and she sort of appears briefly and then disappears, leaving Sir Richard to look up at this old ash tree that's sort of ha that's standing there. And we start to hear these very strange, like a baby crying sound, which were incredibly creepy, these sounds mm. that we hear, yes. this kind of mm, baby noise. Back in the past, in the old storyline, again, we've got two storylines running together, which is a common thing in these. So Matthew goes to the river and he sees Mistress Mother Soul, who is there also, and she smiles at him. She's actually uh, an actress who's appeared in a few of the Hammer Horror things. She was in the oh. Hammer Horror, Hammer House of Horror series, and she was Dracula Has Risen from the Grave and a Tygon film Torture Garden. So, oh, she's really, she's really beautiful. Yeah, she is actually, and yeah. um, not afraid to get her boobs out in this. I must say, no, I was really surprised by that. Yeah, when you said Hammer, I don't know. Some Hammer movies have nudity, right? So, oh, they, yeah, they did. Yeah, quite a few of them were. Yeah, <laughs> but I was just surprised on it being a television thing. That was all, you know. Well, but... not to get off topic real quick, but what is nudity on television like there? I mean, I thought it was like pretty much like kind of a laid back thing, like you could have it. I think it's there. hard. Yeah, it's hard to sort of say because it's what you're used to. So it's hard to sort of compare it to things. But I think it was a lot. There was a bit more liberal than what I understand it was in the states at the time. Oh, absolutely, but, no but, nudity here. Yeah, but but at the same time, it was still a bit surprising to see her. Well, kind of strung up and sort of chained up in a in that way with the boobs out. Although I was quite interested to see that apparently in those days people did shave their armpits. Yeah, I know. I thought about that, too. I thought about that, too. <laughs> but uh, while she's outside in this earlier scene, um, you get three men turn up, one of them banging on a drum as they're there, and one of them he refers to as Witchfinder. And Sir Richard says to him something along the lines of, you won't find anything here. Now, at this point, I must say, I was struggling a bit. I was getting a bit confused because the same actor was being used in the the old story with Sir Matthew as the newer story as Sir Richard and right. apart from a very slightly different wig looked exactly the same and it mm -hmm. did get a bit confusing sometimes when it switched between the different timelines so uh, it took a bit of unravelling <laughs> Where's new Sir Matthew's face such funny colour? Not Sir Matthew child Sir Richard new squire, new name yeah, I had the same issue. Matter of fact, I didn't even really realize when they showed him first in the figure of like his ancestor that it was a different character. It mm. took, I thought it was a job he had like a year before or something and he was remembering <laughs> it. And it took me a little while to kind of catch up with what was happening. Yeah, it's like a picture employee of the month picture. 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Just just sit here and stroke this skull with your hand. This is <laughs> that, which is what he's doing in the picture. GB, GB, what are you doing? You're taking what? this to a whole other level. <laughs> no, it was an innocent comment. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, so it was a little bit confusing. But then we then cut to Sir Matthew. So Matthew is in the old timeline, and he's lying in bed tossing. And, and turning <laughs> and having problems sleeping and th- what's up with you <laughs> and he's having these visions <laughs> um i presume anyway and he hears something outside and when he goes to the window to see what it is he sees mistress mother soul um outside i think she's picking branches off the ash tree or something and yeah. he then considers that aha he's caught her in the act doing something that's witchy and he starts to go after her. he jumps on his horse and chases after her we love you. Now we see you, Mistress Mother Soul. Now we see you in your night shape, the night hair. We shall pursue you to your house. Even off, the better. We shall prevent you there. And he seems to think at some point she turns into an animal, like a hare or something. Yes. But when he finally gets to her house, she's obviously just got out of bed. So, you know, she hasn't really. That's right. I had a hard time with that scene, too, because when they cut to the rabbit, Mm. I wasn't sure what I was looking at because it looked like it was different stock. The film. Oh, right. <laughs> it was a bit and, of uh, and, stock footage. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, what? I don't understand what the correlation is. And actually, I didn't understand until you spelled it out just now. Yeah, I think he just saw that as, ah, oh, this, this must mean that she's a witch, that sort of thing. Correct. So jumping back into the later storyline, Sir Richard is discussing his building plans with some bloke, but he hears crying again. So we got this jumping backwards and forwards. Back to the scene in the past with Sir Matthew, where we mentioned earlier on when she's topless and chained up and everything. He tells her, uh, what I have seen, I have seen. So again, this kind of repetition structure mm. to his dialogue. But there's something in the way he says it that makes it seem like a, almost like an apology, almost like an uncomfortable justification of what he's said. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back in the the later time, there's a man that comments on the ash tree being so near to the house and he says all the roots will drain all the goodness and they'll damage the foundations. And Sir Richard reveals that he's not been happy with the bedroom he's been staying in because I think it's something to do with chimney smoke and the other rooms he's looked at have got bad views or servants walking past them all the time or the sun will wake him up. Um, uh, But he decides that this one room he hasn't looked in before, whose window overlooks the ash tree, he's going to have a look at that one. Um, Apparently... That one hadn't been offered to him before because it hasn't been used since his ancestor, Sir Matthew, had died in it. And while we're in there, we notice that the ash tree outside, the leaves are scraping against the windows and someone suggests that he should cut it down. Don't do it. <laughs> and moving on to the next scene. Now, the next scene is set out in like the middle of moors and things. It looks an awful lot it, like Dartmoor, if um, anyone's seen that, where you've got loads of like large expanses of, of grass with little rocky outcrops and things, and then big rocky structures that look almost like buildings. And Sir Matthew arrives just as a cart arrives, bringing the so-called witches ready to be hanged. And it seems to have got quite a crowd there already, which is interesting considering it's miles from anywhere and they would have had to walk 
And uh, he says again, uh, good sirs, what I have seen, I have seen. He really likes that kind of repetition. And he he starts to talk to Mistress Mother Soul, who's there among these so-called witches. And um, and as she's responding to him, she notices woman is pregnant. I think that might be his his Lady Augusta. I wasn't quite sure. I couldn't quite see. Yeah. It looked like it may be her and she's she's pregnant. So she says something that sounds like a curse. Mine shall inherit! And no, sweet babes, shall now mine. And then there's the hanging, which was a a very uh, a, a good scene, very tense and quite a disturbing scene of these women being screaming and being hanged. Yeah, that one woman, the one I think on the far right, is like her screaming is like mm. a very upsetting. Yeah, especially when they take her out the cart and take her. She's yes. really, really screaming. Yeah, it's upsetting. And, you know, the thing is also there's that layer of this happened to somebody. Yes, at some point. yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's yes, exactly. This isn't all fiction. These sort of things did go on. Yes. Um, there's a, a really good cut done with the the filming of this as well because just at the point where they would have been hanged it cuts across to i think a glass of red wine or port or something which drops and smashes on the floor just Mm. at that point which is a really good good cut um it was revealed then that sir matthew the guy from the old story had been found dead by his bed um and they describe him as being dead and black disordered and nobody seems to know why or how and they blame it on a popish plot which presumably means someone has come over from from there and poisoned him or something mm. and croom says when he tried to shut the eyes his arms got all sore and swollen That's which is right. what i was referring to earlier on when we mentioned about the the crown in the you know the finding the the old crown oh, and people touching yeah. it and it's somehow affecting you and um, it's also mentioned that the death of Mistress Mother Soul had preyed upon Sir Matthew's mind, apparently, which ties in again with him not sounding entirely confident about what he was had been saying. Yes. And we are here that he did sortilege, which was a new word to me, which is like a sort of telling your fortune by doing something random. And in his case, he'd open up the Bible and just put his finger on a page. And apparently he came up with quotes from isaiah luke and job that are it shall never be inhabited cut it down and her young ones also suck up blood so Hmm. you know lots of foreboding there lots of so anyway there's also someone in the past had asked matthew about some kind of squirrel-like creatures they'd seen running up the ash tree so again something intriguing we're about to find out about Sir Richard, in the later story, decides that cutting down the tree might be a good idea after all. And there's a very creepy scene where he is going up the stairs and he stops at the portrait of his ancestor, the one with him with a skull and everything like that. And um, it's all lit with just candlelight and moonlight coming through the window and everything. But you hear these really odd baby noises, this kind mm. of gurgling, strange, not crying, but just kind of gurgling noises. Ugh. And you see something small scuttle around, but you don't quite see what it is. Um, 
Anyway, he does his own version of sortilege. He grabs the Bible and he finds a quote at random, which is, thou shalt seek me in the morning and I shall not be. And then we get the big reveal, or rather the little reel, of the creatures. And they're really horrible. And as an arachnophobe, I can say they're horrible. They're like little baby heads on spiders like you know little heads from babies with sort of little wispy hair and little faces on spiders legs and they make these horrible gurgly noises uh. and they scuttle around at them oh, somebody had a great day creating them but they're very good yes they are and they're unexpected like i never mm. expected to see something so that grotesque and monstrous in this yeah and they're they're done they're very um sort of low tech as a special effect but it works really well you know, it's yeah. you know, a long time before CGI and stuff, but they work really well, these little little things. Well, they, they take their time too. Like yeah. like they scuttle around and they climb on him and they do all kinds of stuff. And it just it's so effective because it's not just like a quick cut and then cut back. It's like let's just sit on them for a while and, and follow them around and they're horrifying. Yeah, they are. And they start to crawl all over Sir Richard when he's in his bed. And I tell you, he's not the only one that's having flashbacks, because believe me, it's been a long time since I was in bed and taken by surprise by a monster. I'm sorry. That's sad. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Chiddick comes in to find Sir Richard dead in his bed, and the creatures are outside on the tree, like some sort of fruit or something hanging off the tree, which is quite horrible. And she reacts by throwing the candle, and the ash tree catches fire. Yes, I loved her. I thought she'd make a good final girl because she's super resourceful. She's like, oh, my God, this is absolutely horrifying. Burn it. Burn Mm. it. But when she when the tree catches fire, this I thought was probably the most disturbing scene in it, because you've got the, the tree burning and then you've got these burning baby spider monster things and they're like crying in pain and they're kind of squealing and some of them are getting splattered as the flames are being beaten it's it's really quite disturbing this little scene yes anyway we go the next morning it's daylight and we get the the very prim lady augusta turns turns up again on horseback side saddle of course and she finds the men are looking at the smoldering remains of the ash tree and what they're looking at is this very horrible kind of mummified skeletal corpse that's in the yeah. ground where the tree was which we presume was mistress mother soul that's right because they dig up a grave and it's empty mm, that's right so this is where she somehow she's managed to get there and yes. um lady augusta goes up to see the body of sir richard and as she goes up to him she touches his hand and then suddenly flinches and pulls her hand away as if it's as if it's hurt which is exactly what the uh, vicar i think was describing earlier on and again this kind yes. of touch passes it on so this one, I thought it, it took a while to get going, but I loved all the Witchfinder general type folk horror that, that come up with it. And the monsters at the end, um, they worked really well. I thought they were very, very unsettling. And if I'd have seen this as a child when it was actually shown on television, I think I would have been completely traumatized by oh, this. Sure. <laughs> But um, yeah, same as before. They they use the locations really, really well in this. Um, the camera work is very good. There's some really good scenes, and yeah. um, and there was some lovely photography during the hanging scene where you've got uh, Mistress Mother Soul is in the cart, which is at an angle, and she's standing there. And there's it's just a really nice photography in there. The only criticism really I've got is that I was a bit confused in a few places mm-hmm. with the actors being the same actor and looking the same. That was the only thing that I. What did you think of this one? 
Well, um, yeah, I have to talk about, I was thoroughly confused through most of it. Like it took me a while to figure out who was who and where they were. Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, but I do think it's worth seeing just for the money shot at the end because (laughs) you just don't get a quick cut. Like I said, to the baby spiders, but, um, baby head spiders, I guess is a better way to describe (laughs) it. But like, but like you're talking about when they were burning the tree down and they spent a lot of time destroying the, the monsters and you, you see them just like burned and smashed. And I feel like there were even people that the employees of the house came out and I feel like one of them hit one with like a two by four or something like they're like, I think that they're killing them as well. Like the people are trying to help contain the monsters and, and it takes a while, you know, it's, it's not a very quick scene and it prolongs it. And the more it goes, the more horrifying it is. And it's really well done. Um, and I really liked the woman who played the witch, the mother saw character. I thought she was really lovely and she plays her in the two different realms work better for me in differentiating them because she's really pristine and cleaned up and lovely in what would be the modern time, which would be when it was the story actually starts taking place. But in the flashback, she's got a real sinister, a little more dirty quality to her. And I feel like they transported or translated, I guess is the word I want to use. Um, the time period's better with her, but you're right. The actor didn't look that different. Um, Mm from time frame to time frame and like i said i thought it was just this i thought he was just remembering something he did before he moved to the house so it was really hard for me to to understand i was the same it took me a while to kind of tune into it and figure out what was going on and then it made sense then but it wasn't immediate you know because because he looks so similar and the different wigs he had on for the different characters the the old one and the the new one um weren't that different one looked a bit scruffier and bigger but yeah the rest of it he's got kind of a his face is is quite distinctive face which means that you tend to look at that rather than the wig so that confusing and because they're both i mean i i refer to it as like you know the the old story and the present but it's not really present they're both old but because they're both period drama type things it it's hard to, to sort of to separate the two in your head. So yes, it took, I think the second time I watched it, it made a lot of sense. The first time it took me a while to get into what was going on, but I I did enjoy it. Once I figured it out and then watched it, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I would, I would recommend it uh, mostly for the end, but I I do think people should watch. If you're going to do ghost story for Christmas, this isn't one that should be excluded at all. No, no. Um, But maybe you could watch it last. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Or first, I guess, if you want to get it out of the way. But yeah, I just it's just not as scary. But but the ending definitely takes you there. Yeah, yeah. I think I like this a bit more than you. But that's not so much because it's scary, but because I just liked the whole. It just reminded me of Hammer films, you know, the kind of Witchfinder Mm. general type of thing. And I think that's what I I kind of liked that. I don't know that aspect of it. But yeah. The Trilogy of Terror podcast. Anyway, we're down to our final one of the six we're doing, which is the Signalman. An accident on this stretch of the line must be a terrible thing. In the tunnel, say. A tunnel collision is the worst to be feared. Your nightmares would go hard to equal it. The wreckage becomes hideously compressed in the confined space. If fire breaks out, the tunnel and its ventilating shafts become furnace flues. You cannot see in the dark to get the wreckage and the bodies out. The screams of the injured and dying 
echo in a most persistent way. It's the shape of the tunnel, you see, sir. But you can only do your duty. Oh, yes, sir. And you have all this? This place of peace? And you have no desires to go elsewhere? I have not. Yeah, this one is interesting because it's a Charles Dickens adaptation, um, mm. not M.R. James. And uh, I, I might have lied when I said The Treasure of Abbot Thomas was my second favorite because I really like this one, too. So I'm excited to talk about it. So um, <laughs> uh, we open with a man calling out, hello, down below, to a man standing near train tracks. I didn't do it as scary as the guy in the movie does it, so <laughs> don't go by how I did it. Uh, and, but he's standing by these train tracks, which lead to a tunnel. The signal man played by Denholm Elliott, and he's the only actor I'm going to reference in any of these because he's really famous. And oh, um, yeah. he, he believes he has seen this traveler before and is very confrontational with him. This is followed by a strange and opaque conversation, which leads to an uneasy friendship, which follows through the rest of the story. So this is a really interesting um, episode, and it might get confusing because to the best of my knowledge, the two main characters, actually nobody has a name. So no, it's that's man, true. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. And the traveler. Yes. So um, so you're going to hear those words a lot, but they're, Denholm Elliott is a signal man, and I don't know who the traveler is, but you can figure it out. So the, <laughs> men are, <laughs> the men are sitting near a roaring fire, and the signal man discusses the importance of his job despite the monotony. He also appears to be a learned man and is currently studying mathematics, although he claims it is more to kill time than for any other reason. There is an eerie-sounding bell that rings ominously, although the traveler doesn't seem concerned about it. Um, the traveler falls asleep and wakes up in the middle of the night, and the signal man talks about the trauma of train crashes in the tunnel he oversees. The, um, the traveler leaves, but the signal man implores him to return soon, but to not call out as he leaves or to call out when he is to return the next night. Alone in his room, the traveler begins to think about the train accident and is obviously having difficulty sleeping. The bell is the central symbol at this stage. So um, something I wanted to talk about briefly is that at this point – I actually thought that the traveler was dead. Ah, yes. Yes, I can see why you, yeah. And they were sort of stuck in this sort of purgatory together mm. and that he was he was the traveler. So he was making his, you know, journey to the other side. But that's not where the story goes at all, surprisingly enough. No, but enough. I, can, I can see where you get that from, yes. Yeah, it's really creepy. And when he's sleeping and having these, like, uh, memories that aren't really memories. And so um, the next evening, the traveler does return and the signal man confesses that he is, he was originally afraid of the traveler because he mistook him for someone else. Then he begins to tell a story about a train crash that occurred on his watch um, and about a figure warning of the upcoming crash. The signal man then confesses that he was a man of philosophy, but had abandoned such thoughts, presumably because of the supernatural experiences he was having. Um, some months after this train accident, the light that shines outside the tunnel suddenly lights up as red and has stayed that way, um, and the figure continues to reappear to him. This time we see the face of a specter. Oh, yeah, so the uh, we see – I'm not sure where we are in the story. I guess halfway. Yeah, yeah. Um, this time we see the face of a specter who looks like he's in mid-scream. So this is a really unsettling image. So the way we mm. see – the specter is he's calling out to him, you know, he's saying, um, hello down below, but he's got one hand in front of him and I can't remember it's holding something. And then his other hand is sort of over to the other. It's like going across his face yeah. to the other side and his, uh, jacket is covering up the man's face. So you never see who, what the specter looks like. Yeah. And then he's, he's kind of, uh, revealed sort of, uh, 
suddenly to uh, the signal man. And he's like this white porcelain mask that's frozen. Like there's no movement in the face. It's just it looks like a mask. That's right. And there's no eyes, which I found very. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really creepy. And so um, the image is followed by a young bride. And I was unclear about this. She either falls from the train or is thrown from the train. I thought the same because she's kind of hanging out the window or, or something as the train goes past. But then it looks as though she's kind of thrown. It was hard to tell, but it's still a really creepy image because they come to get her and they're carrying her away. And she's in her bridal dress and like this beautiful young woman. And when they're carrying her away, the camera is from uh, where her head is, like it's following the men. And her head is uh, hung back and it's got this look of terror Mm. on her face. And they're just kind of taking her like farther away from the camera. And it's a really upsetting image. It's, there's some really nice photography in this as well. I mean, yeah. there's, as she's being carried away, she's got her arms that are kind of hanging down at an angle that sort of reflects the, uh, the train lines, you know, the, the way oh, they are. And interesting. There's a, a, a scene later on, I'm not really spoiling it yet, but there's a scene where you see a character walking out of the tunnel and stands in the middle of the tunnel. It's face on central with smoke and steam coming out of the tunnel. And it just, it's just such a lovely, from from a photography point of view, it just looks lovely. Yeah. You know, there's some really interesting camera work going on in this. Yeah, it's really interesting because the location is not as um, exotic as it has been in the past episodes, but they make up for it with like the your interest, like the framings that you brought up is really interesting. So they're doing different things. I really liked the location. I thought it was very nice because it was like a self-contained thing. So you've got just yeah. like it's down in a in a deep cut where you've got the, the entrance to the tunnel, the train track running along, and then you've got the signal box very close to it as well. So yes. it's, it's almost all of the action takes place just in that that little bit. And I, I quite like that. It's just a very like a self-contained little set all by itself. It's just really nicely done. And, and apparently the um, signal box isn't real. That was just a sort oh. of a set prop thing they put up. So that's all fake. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but which is a shame because it would be a great location. <laughs> I think I meant it was less ornate. Than oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not like a, it's a big stately home or, or a cathedral or anything like that. It's much more humble than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely more claustrophobic um, mm. as well. The signalman at one point refers to it as being down here in the dark, in the shadows, which he is opposed yeah. to being up there in the sun. So there's that sort of interesting imagery about it as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The, um, and then the specter continues to return to the tunnel, each time saying the same thing, hello down below, followed by a warning. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, his face is obscured by a cape that which he's draped over his arm and, and uh, which he holds to his head. So the signal man seems as frustrated as he is terrified by the specter, and the traveler attempts to add logic to an illogical situation, which is this undercurrent we've been talking about. But here we see it in a Dickens story, which is kind of interesting. Mm. So uh, the discussion then turns into how devoted a worker the signal man is um and that those were merely accidents so this is definitely that undercurrent of like i can explain what's happening yeah um when actually he's dealing with something that can't be explained but um the traveler's haunted by these stories and again he suffers another sleepless night the next day the traveler is walking to the, uh, through the fields when he finally hears this ominous bell running towards the tracks we see the signal man standing in the middle of them uh, taken aback by the specter the train barrels through the tunnel in the opposite direction we'd seen uh, we'd seen the train coming from which is interesting because we always see it going in one direction and hmm. here it's coming in the opposite direction and i don't know if that's important or not but um 
we see the train and then we see the signal man is run over and killed. The traveler comes to the scene and um, there's some people there uh, and the signal man's dead. And uh, I think he was the conductor of the train. He said that he had been trying to warn the signal man yelling, hello, down below. And yes. that's how it ends. Yes. And which is a really creepy, upsetting ending because then you start to wonder, is there, did he really have, is there this logical, obviously it's supernatural and it's a precognition of what is to come. But at the same time, it's like, it's like, I feel like there is a sense of logic to what's happened. So it's almost mixing the two together for me anyway. Yeah, because it, it does the uh, thing with the arms as well, because there was um, when the signal one's describing this this figure, he sort of has what you said, like, you know, one arm outstretched and the other one sort of across and stuff. Or, and uh, when the, the guy from the train is describing, like you said, says, hello, hello down there or something. He sort of does this gesture with his arms as well, which is quite so. It's That's like right. a sort of prophetic thing that he's done, you know, which is quite ooh, yeah. Interestingly, as well, the uh, the signal one that gets splatted by the the train is it's looking in pretty good shape considering he's just been hit full on by a, yeah. by a very fast train. He's uh, yeah. looking not too bad. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting. I wasn't expecting that to happen at the end, so I was quite pleased with that. Um, this is another one where I did wonder for a little while whether there was a, a sort of a, a, a sexual vibe thing going on here. Again, it might just mm. be me, but um, it's sort of odd the way that these two men kept meeting up in this secluded place down, you know, this underground sort of place. Um, they kept meeting and then one of them fell asleep and was woken up in the middle of the night. And he even offers at one point to, to stay there till dawn if you want. And I don't know, it just seemed a little bit... Um, um, it's a bit odd for someone you've never met before to suddenly keep wanting to come and see you and then stay with you all night and stuff like this. And I did laugh at one point as well. There was uh, they talked about the the bell and the, the noise it makes and stuff. And and at one point this woman says, "No, no, no! I've never confused the spectre's ring with the man's." And I was quite glad to hear that. <laughs> I did, I missed that line, but I was going to say I thought the neon sign that said bathhouse. <laughs> was a clear was a pretty good giveaway that something was happening. <laughs> the way I saw it was because I thought he was dead. I thought that they were sort of drawn to each other, uh, not in a sexual way, but they, but there was something there that was making him come back. That was, I um, think so was too. Supernatural. There is a there is a, a point where he asks the traveler why he's there, sort of thing, and the traveler just says he was drawn there. He literally says, "I yes, was drawn right. there." So yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a much more innocent. <laughs> yeah, it's a much more. It's just for me. It's just that the traveler has got that sort of graying hair and those very dark eyebrows and. Um, yeah, maybe wishful thinking. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're <laughs> learning so much about you during this episode. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, it's like I really loved this story. And I read some trivia that this story from Charles Dickens was actually came out of Dickens' own terrifying experience with a, a train crash. And yes, also that yeah. he had Victorian fears of uh, mechanical mayhem brought on by the Industrial Revolution. And ah, so, yes, yeah. And we had sort of referenced that earlier. I was, yes, I was going to say, you'd mentioned that before, that that's a, a theme that pops up again. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. This one's really meticulously paced. Um, it's it's really just these two guys talking, mostly. And, then, and one thing I noted was that there's a very subtle score, and sometimes it follows the bell. And I don't even mm. know how to describe the sounds that they make in the score but it's really this beautiful underlying like it almost like keeps going past the ring but it's got a ring to it mm. and it, it sits underneath sort of the film like it's, you almost don't notice it if you're not paying attention to it mm. and 
and it really adds to the atmosphere. And so they take like a very small space that's a little bit more plain than what we've looked at before. And then they add like a real sense of menace helped by that score. And also I think helped by the dialogue, like the opening dialogue is really kind of confusing and Hmm. opaque and weird. And you're not really sure. They could be discussing several different things. It feels like in that conversation, they're both coming from two different places. And, and so it's intriguing. Like the discussions are intriguing and um, it's got a really nice payoff at the end. And so I thought this was a really good story to adapt, even though they've moved away from MR James, I think they've kept the spirit of MR James in the Stickin story. I agree. I think it's different in a lot of ways. And because, you know, obviously because it's written by a different person and and as you mentioned, you know, the setting and everything is very different and um but I think I don't know if it's because it's the same director as the others or not, but it definitely fits in with these. It, it's definitely part of that that group. But I like you were saying I really liked like the the sort of closeness of it. It's in a very claustrophobic location. It's just that, you know, little square of the, the tunnel the the signal box and the track but also it's just two characters that carry the whole thing you know all the other characters are just minor characters and it's just down to two actors playing two characters and that is it it's quite intense but it's very very well done i i really like that i think that was a really good way of doing it yeah, I agree. I agree. He did a really great job putting this one together. And um, it just sits with you afterwards. I think it's just got a real haunting quality to it. Yeah. And uh, there's also the loneliness themes sort of popped up again, mm. I think. Yeah. You know, he's sitting there by himself down there, you know, and that's a theme that's been explored in the other ones as well. Yeah, it definitely has some similarities um, to it. Like we talked about the line that they keep repeating, and that's an MR James mm. thing. Yes. And yes, the loneliness. So it's really interesting. Yeah, really good. I highly recommend this one. The writer for this one was Andrew Davis, who is quite a big name in as far as um, TV dramas and, and some big films. He's written loads of stuff since this. So the big one he did, I think, that got him well known was the Pride and Prejudice TV adaptation, which is the one with Colin Firth coming out of a lake yes. in a wet shirt. He did that one. But yeah. also he's done loads of those kind of costume dramas like Emma and Sense and Sensibility and uh, Mr. Mr. Selfridge, he did that, and Bridget Jones' diary and the sequel to that as well. That's where I know him, yeah. Yeah, he's done a lot of these. Well, he even did a sitcom in the 90s called Game On, which was quite popular over here, which is very yeah. different to those. But uh, yeah, I think he did really well in this, and I think it's the only one he wrote out of these these ones. Interesting. Yeah, well, so Lawrence Gordon-Clark, I, th- I feel like he... I don't know how many he adapted. He at least adapted the first two. Is that correct? Um, I don't know how many he himself. He directed all about uh, all. Well, he yes. directed the first six anyway. But I don't know if which ones he adapted himself. Um, I will say uh, just a little bit of trivia about Lawrence Gordon Clark mm. is that he was working for BBC at the time. Um, they made this first one that he did. Uh, he was actually a documentary filmmaker, um, and he had grown up on James stories. His father had introduced him. Uh, to James when he was a child and he was just really taken by all of his tales. So um, while he was working at the BBC, he pitched an idea of making um, more of these James tales after Whistle and I'll Come to You from 1968. And there was somebody who's called the BBC One Controller, and I'm not sure what that is, if that's your president of BBC or what, but his name was Paul Fox. Yeah, the big boss, I imagine, yes. (laughs) Clark actually gave this person named Paul Fox a copy of James's collected ghost stories with a note suggesting they adapt the stalls of Barchester. Fox reluctantly agreed and gave Clark a modest, you said this earlier, you said 8,000, I have 9,000 here pounds. Okay. Um, 
And it started with an 18 day shooting schedule, which they cut to 10, which you may have said actually. Yes, yeah. And, and Clark, so Clark took on the duties of writer, producer, and director. Because he was connected so well to the BBC, he was allowed to take advantage of a lot of the staff members. So if he needed a good art director, he knew who to go to. It wasn't really like he had to really look for people. They were in-house. And so he used a lot of that to his advantage. Um, he also had a great eye for landscapes. And he spent many hours in pre-production hunting those locations that we talked about that were oh, so beautiful. Yes. That was one of the best things about a lot of the, the ones is the, the settings, the landscapes, the locations, the buildings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a real eye for that. So since this article was that I looked at, which I think was from 2005, was written, apparently James, in terms of having a theme, theatrical adaptation um that has basically eluded him except for curse of the demon which i think was loosely based on the casting of the runes okay that's the only time james has ever made it to the big screen so what's interesting is that this reviewer and i think this was for sight and sound magazine um he said that one of the things that made the ghost story so good was that clark believed in brevity and he never attempted to expand on any of james stories past where they needed to be mm. so so you know they ran at odd times like one would be 36 minutes and one would be 45 but yeah, because it aired yeah. it aired late at night then nothing was really to run after it um i don't know if you guys had like local programming or whatever No, at that time it would have just it would have been the end of the programs then they would have played god save the queen and then it would yeah. have just gone beep until morning yeah so <laughs> so because there was no pressure to have something follow it that had to start at a particular time he was allowed to make these at whatever length he wanted and so that allowed him to take the story and run it just to where it needed to be which i obviously worked in its favor yeah and so, uh, and as you said, uh, the first one, Whistle and I'll Come to You, was remade. And I think John Hurt's in the remake. Okay, okay. I've not seen yeah. the remake, so yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't either. So, um, and that's all I have about Clark. I thought he's a really interesting figure. This is the first time I've really been exposed to him. Mm. Um, and I don't know what else he's done. I didn't really look him up except for to read some reviews of these episodes. So I don't know how well known he is past the 70s he did a really good job it was obvious he understood the source material deeply yeah and his eye as you said was really astounding and so he knew how to like his sense of place and his sense of i think i don't want to say authorship because he's not the author per se but his sense of where the original author was going seemed very strong and and he was probably the perfect person to adapt these tales as far as i can tell and reviewers often called him sympathetic so i think he was really attuned to what mr james's original vision was as compared to a lot of people who adapt things and want to put their own stamp on it i get the feeling that clark wanted to retain what made mr james so good and he carried through with that and and he's in a way simply an extension of mr james to me um, and that makes these really intriguing and fascinating. Uh, there's so much of the signature of the original author in these, I feel, without having read M.R. James. Yeah. That it really stands out. And it's a really kind of great tribute to bringing story to a new medium. One that M.R. James probably never would have envisioned to begin with. You know what I mean? So mm, Definitely. I think he carries that across well. The, I mean, the originally they would have been written to be read as a ghost story, you know, sitting in front of the fire, you know, to read to his friends and things. And I think that's how they kind of set out to, to make them this sort of intimate, have that feeling as if we're being told a ghost story. And I think that works really well. I mean, we've got like the narrators as part of the story anyway, but I think it has that sort of feel to it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I talked about this on my podcast that's coming out around the time this episode comes out. So if people listen to both of them, you're going to get a repeat. But here in America, you know, ghost stories for Christmas aren't, we don't do that. Like, that's just nothing. That's something we that never occurred to us. But there's this episode of Tales from the Dark Side, which was a syndicated anthology show that did an episode called Seasons of Belief, which right. is a really famous episode. And it's about a family. It's um, mother, father, E.G. Marshall is the father, and they've got two little kids, and the kids want a story. And so they start to tell them a story about a monster who travels from, like, the North Pole. And at the end, the monster manifests himself into their world, and it becomes very horrifying. And it's interesting because they're sitting around a fire in it, and E.G. Marshall had actually been um, just prior – to doing this episode of uh, Monsters, like in the decade before, he had been working for, I think it was CBS Radio, and he used to tell stories on this radio show he had. And so he's the storyteller, and it's very much like taking the English tradition of ghost stories hmm. and then adapting it in a way that's accessible to American audiences. And um, it's got a lot of undercurrent to all kinds of stuff in it. It's it's about the cynicism of childhood and, and how you can manifest the negative if you put too much weight into it and things like that. But I feel like it really capitalizes on a tradition that isn't American at all in a really interesting way. Hmm. And... Um, so I just wanted to mention that because I feel like even though we don't do it, there's a spirit there that's carried over to us in some form, at yeah. least to the person who wrote Seasons of Belief. And so there is like a tinge of it here, but that's the only time I can think of it really happening. Because it's interesting you say about the, the cultural differences, you know, and the audiences and things. I mean, these these that we've watched, the six that we've watched, do you think they would translate well to a U.S. audience if they saw them? Um, you know, I think in this day and age, they would. And I think in the 70s, they certainly would have because, um, well, that's a good question. Because like our ghost stories, I'm thinking of like the exorcist, not necessarily ghost story, but or the <laughs> omen, you know, we were obsessed with Satan then. But yeah. currently, you know, some of the biggest films that have come out are the James Wan films. And those are all about you know, hauntings yes. and, you know, insidious and the conjuring and they're very low key. They don't use a lot of special effects that are computer generated. Everything's practical, almost everything. And it, they're, they're very much about these, um, particular places with small casts and, and although they probably have more scary beats in them, they do take their time to tell the stories. And I feel like audiences now eat that stuff up and I feel like they would really appreciate the way these stories were adapted. And, and I think the slow burn is kind of popular right now. Um, yeah, as for the period yeah. piece, I don't really know. I mean, I feel like American audiences, there's no real, that's horrible. That sounds insulting. There is a sense <laughs> of history here, but sometimes I feel like we're so much in the contemporary. Like I read an article, which sounds like I'm getting off topic, but I read this article about why kids don't like black and white movies anymore. And they were talking about how like, even, you know, on Saturday Night Live, which is a sh really popular show here, you're not allowed to make references, pop culture references that are older than like three years oh, old. Right. And so we're constantly put into the modern here. And, um, and so old movies seem really old, you know, and also there's so many TV stations that there's so much current programming to choose from that we kind of forget about the black and white and stuff. And so I don't know how audiences would uh, embrace how much they might embrace a period piece. But I think the, the beats of the story and the slow burn would definitely be something that we are now really into. Hmm. And so I don't know, it would be interesting, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like we would dig it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just curious to know really. 
Okay. Well, one final question I'd like to ask you, um, okay. and this is nothing to do with these that we've just watched or anything like okay. that. Uh, it's just to say we're, we're coming up for the, the Christmas holiday. And I just wondered, do you have a festive go-to movie that you always like to watch at this time of year? My most festive go-to movie, I watch it every year, is Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs> All right. I've watched it for years. I've seen it in the theater a couple times over Christmas um, in Los Angeles. The, there's a revival house there that is now owned by Quentin Tarantino. But before he got there, they played Silent Night, Deadly Night, I think, two years in a row. And I went and um, I always liked it. It's it's a really dark film. It's cynical, but it's also kind of an interesting character study. And I think the more I see it, the more I see in it. And I don't know if it's intentional or not because it's a real low budget, you know, horror film. Yeah, yeah. But it's really fun. And the guy who plays Billy is I know you've seen this score blind. Yeah. <laughs> he's so beautiful oh my god i met him i met him last year um at texas frightmare and he was really cool um but like it's got everything i want it's a slasher which i talked about yeah, loving yeah i love the way christmas horror turns all the christmas traditions on its ear and so that's sort of are you naughty or nice thing is really yes. prevalent in the film and and it's kind of fun and i do think it is a really interesting character study and then it's also got some beefcake so it's basically <laughs> everything i've ever wanted to see in a horror movie is in this one film and yeah i watch it every christmas eve i i do think um this year will be another uh, spin of black christmas we i've seen it three times in the theater the oh, nice. first time yeah the first time i saw it was with bob clark the director and john saxon oh, in wow. the audience yeah i got to meet john saxon which was really cool mm -hmm. and um the second time i saw it olivia hussey was there so wow. um yeah the, the third time i saw it was just the film itself which is wonderful on its own that's a legitimately scary film it's a great film, yeah. Yeah, it's so good, and it just gets better and better. And um, and then third, I never think to mention this, but um, I watched this thing called Nestor the Long-Eared Christmas Donkey. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a. Do you, do you know, are you familiar with Rankin and Bass over there? You know the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stop animation. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen them. I didn't know that's what they were called, but yeah, I know the ones you yep. mean. Rankin and Bass are the two guys who made these specials and they did a bunch of them. They did like the little drummer boy and Santa Claus is coming to town. And they did this one called Nestor, the long eared Christmas donkey. And I saw it as a kid and it's, it's, extremely traumatic it's about this donkey that can't get along with anybody because he's basically othered because he has these really long ears and nobody likes him and he's always <laughs> tripping on him and they're teasing him and then during the time of like this roman war people come to get all the donkeys for the war and they go to take them on they're paying the owner of the donkeys but then they find that nestor has these super long ears and he's no good to them and they think that the owner of the donkey is trying to con them out of money so they take all the goats and leave nestor behind i'm sorry donkeys and and so he gets kicked out of his house and it's, it's a blizzard's happening and he's homeless and his mother follows him and she tries to keep him warm during the blizzard and he wakes up the next morning. She's covered him and she's died in the snowstorm. Oh my and God. It's very upsetting. It's very upsetting. And so he's on, he's all by himself in the world. And this cherub comes down and tells him that he has a very important mission and his mission is to take Mary to the manger. Right and, right. and he takes her through this uh, sandstorm and he covers her with his ears. And it's so beautiful. And she has baby Jesus. And I'm not even religious, but I love yeah, the story. Yeah. Every year I watch it and I watch it by myself because it's it. I'm like snot in tears <laughs> for days after I watch it. But I'm really compelled 
to watch it every year. It's just, I'm so attuned to Nestor. Like, I am Nestor. Nestor is me. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I watch that every year. What do you watch? Um, well, I only have one traditional um, Christmassy film that I watch, which I really love. And it's nothing like that. But it's uh, just The Muppet Christmas Carol, because I think oh, it's so it's great. It's so funny. It, it, I never get bored of watching it. And it's, it's, it's not that far off the original. You know, they use a lot of the same dialogue yeah. and everything, which is great. But if I was going to pick one that's a horror one, um, just for its kind of quirkiness and its being so different, I think it's from Finland. It's Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. Oh. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. But ah. uh, my husband just saw it. He yes. just saw it yesterday or the day before. Um, he liked it. Yeah. yeah. We've been meaning to watch. I'm so bad with like, and this isn't even a new film anymore, but I'm so bad <laughs> with like keeping up with current films that it just kind of went by the by the wayside but i've heard it's very good it is and it just i love the way it kind of turns the the legend of um santa on its head <laughs> and, yeah. and it, it's great it's one of those things you don't really want to say too much about um if nobody's seen it but uh, it's a very underrated one that's worth hunting out well i wanted to ask you do yeah. you ever do you ever cry when you watch them up at christmas carol when they when they show tiny tim's little little um oh my god i can't even think of the word now you know he's got that little thing that he walks with the crutch crutch oh my god i kept wanting so to say like forget crouch. words like crutch honestly <laughs> i can't want to say crouch, crouch and then crotch and i'm like i'm not getting crotch. this right when his little when his little crutch is leaning up against because he's died right yeah, yeah. And, and his little crutch is on the chair and it's tiny it's mm, so tiny I know. and i saw that in the theater when it came out and i lost it oh no it doesn't i mean there are other films that do but no i don't think that one's ever got me like that <laughs> i don't know why are you heartless no no oh i wouldn't be able to your, your film about a long-eared donkey i think i'd be absolutely oh i'd be traumatized for days after that if i watched that that's awesome yeah i did i took a class um at school that was on um adaptations and i actually did a christmas carol and we covered like oh, right. every adaptation we obviously not everyone that's impossible but we did a bunch of them and um i can't remember which was the main one i think i wanted to do the one that george c scott did I guess in the 80s, because I love George C. Scott, and it gave me a good excuse <laughs> to just talk about him. But we did them up at Christmas yeah. Carol, too. We discussed that, and I got to rewatch it, and it's so good. But it's a it's such a good story, and it's it's been done so yeah. many – like television yeah. has really run with it. Every episode of a sitcom has done a Christmas Carol. You know what I mean? And it's, it's just so timeless. I love it. And it's a, a Christmas ghost story as well. Yes, that's right. And I never thought of it that way. Yeah, very perfect for this one. That just fits in well. So anyway, Amanda, thank you so much for talking to me and for going through all of these with me and watching them all and uh, discussing them with me. It's been absolutely lovely having you on here. It's been the best. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been excited about this for a while. So. Oh, so if people want to find out a bit more or want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, I guess the best way is to visit my blog, which is just madefortvmayhem.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. I think it's just at madefortvmayhem. And my blog has a Facebook page, which is just madefortvmayhem. And you could also try the Made for TV Mayhem show, which also has a Facebook page. And I think it's on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. Those are the easiest ways to find me. Yeah, I'm an open book. I'm really into talking about TV movies and horror movies. So if, you, if there's anything you want to talk about uh, or ask questions, like if you know a movie but you can't remember the name of it or whatever just reach out to me on any one of those um, bits of social media and I will respond 
Brilliant. Well, thank you again to my special guest, Amanda Reyes. And I'd also like to say thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the theme music, The Show Must Be Go, and to StrangeAndDeadly.com for giving this podcast a home. And, of course, thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me again in the new year. And until then, have a great Christmas break. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to visit and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at I am Gore Blimey or email us at trilogypodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is the Doom Show. Keep on keeping on and keep on trucking, America. We don't listen to our feedback because we don't get any. <laughs> the truth hurts. I just alienated the two people that give us constant feedback. Sorry, guys. That's gotta go. <laughs> That's gotta go in there. So on the show, uh, we talk about giallo movies and slasher movies and cult movies. Sometimes we even talk about Cameron Mitchell and his movies. I am Richard. Who are you? I am Brad, the guy that's not Richard, or Jeffrey, or Simon. That's right. We have four people, and we always talk at once, except to each other. Jeffrey lives up north. Simon lives across the world. Richard lives in Penis, Alabama. Hello, This is the Doom Show is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Check out the other shows on legionpodcast.com. You can check out more Hello, This is the Doom Show at hellodoomshow.podomatic.com or at doommoviethon.com. Check for our Amazon exclusive Hello, This is the Doom Show cookbook. Do you like hot dogs? (laughs) We got them. Do you like mac and cheese? We got it. Do you like cheddar? We have it. Actually, we don't. No, no cheddar. Just Colby. Colby Jack. Hello, this is the Doom Show. We never gave up on you because you never gave up on us. Wow. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off.